Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Get Connected with Nina Del Rio, a weekly conversation about fitness, health, and happenings in our community on 106.7 Light FM. Good morning, and thanks for listening to Get Connected. Though our world seems more divided and confused than ever about how to deal with racial issues, the vast majority of people would like to address our unconscious biases and have more thoughtful interactions. But what are the tools to engage thoughtfully with people who look and think differently from us? Our guest is law professor and mindfulness teacher Rhonda McGee with her new book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Thank you for being on the show, Rhonda. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. So mindfulness at its core is paying attention. And your story begins with mindfulness practice to try and handle challenges in your own life. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, began with really exploring mindfulness to support me transitioning out of, you know, uh, the whole period of training and education that I went through in that, uh, this arc that I was fortunate to have in many ways, growing up, being born in the South, uh, born in, you know, the desegregating South and participating in all of that. Um, but getting an education and being, uh, becoming a lawyer, moving out to California and really finding myself unable to really relax or um, really feeling uh, unable to really feel particularly well suited to meet all the challenges that, con- that would come with me being a cisgender female woman, black woman going into law, um, being one of the only in my workplace, the only black woman certainly there. Um, one of the only minoritized people, minority you know, people at the law firm. And so I started to lean into mindfulness to support myself. Fast forward to me teaching law and teaching classes dealing with race and law. I really started to feel that if we were only teaching students the cognitive piece, the intellectual piece, you know, even the critical theory piece, the critical race theory, we were missing some opportunity to infuse all of this teaching and learning with um, the realization that we're social and emotional beings and um, that our learning is always infused with our own experiences in life up to that point. And so I started to explore some 15 or so years ago, bringing mindfulness right into my classrooms, right into those classes dealing with race and American legal history and compassion as well. And I started to see a shift in our ability to move through those materials more effectively. Um, and you know, it's been a journey and the culture around us has shifted so that the challenges, of course, continue to shift. But um, I certainly still see the value of at least exploring, bringing these practices to bear as we try to address these difficult issues in this time. I think it's an interesting time because as you're writing this and you're working on this from this point of view, more people are interested and at least aware Um, that there needs to be some sort of personal reckoning of a sort. But how did you think about when you wrote this book and doing this work about connecting with people who may not think they need it? 
Yeah. Well, uh, I do everything I do in the spirit of an offering and with a kind of humility that recognizes that, you know, um, we, we, we offer what we can, we, we, as if we're fortunate, we may be able to give people a taste of what we're just, we're sharing. And if it's not for that person, it's not for them, not everything is. Um, so yeah, there, there certainly will be, there will be folks who mm, actually might be drawn in once they've had a bit of an experience. They may have had an idea that this isn't for them, but then when they just feel the sense of um, open invitation, suddenly they find themselves actually able to, to come into the door that we're opening um, and not be pushed or, or, or in other war ways treated with disrespect in the process. So I like to think of this as an, as an invitation, but, you know, and, but, and I recognize that some of us are more open to that invitation now than others. Some of us might not be open today, but might be later. And I've definitely seen this in my work out there. I've seen people who've said, when I saw that we were gonna talk about racism and diversity here, I kind of crossed my arms and kind of thought, I probably didn't wanna to go to that session. But then I said, I'll come and I'll sit toward the back. And then I saw how you were doing it. And I thought, oh, okay, this is, this is actually, this is different, right? This is not what I expected. Um, this is a place where I kind of actually feel like I want to be. So, so, what, so it can change. So what is color insight and how does this practice in the book mm -hmm. that you've developed combine seeing others with mindfulness? Yeah. Yeah. So it's first to seeing ourselves more clearly because the first piece of color insight is really having that courage to turn toward rather than away from issues of race and racism. We know that there's so much angst and fraughtness around race and um, a lot of different trainings about what to do. Colorblindness was given to uh, many of us uh, uh, as in the post-civil rights generation, be colorblind, you know, that's the way to get beyond race. And I think we are seeing more and more that um, that way may not be the most effective because race is still with us, is still present and not being able to talk about it, not being able to name it is part of the difficulty. But talking about it is, is not easy. And we've been given precious little training support, right, often up into our adulthood. Many of us, in other words, who are in positions of power and authority right now have had woefully little support for exploring these issues on our own or in mixed company. And so it can feel threatening and it can feel like a lot is on the line. And um, so my work is about helping name all of those things and, and nevertheless encourage folks through the practices of what's called color insight to turn toward rather than away from race to open up to a more nuanced approach to what race is and what racism is that um, is held and, and, and to, to open up to a way of learning about this that creates spaciousness for making mistakes, for learning together, for building trust because if we don't do those things, we know we can very easily kind of repair to our, uh, our, our corners and go back into polarization and to right, aggression in response to the, the fear posed by all of this. But Color Insight is really about really starting from that place of the desire to connect and inviting us to kind of name that as our value and let that support us in learning from each other and then working together 
collaboratively in coalitions in solidarity to try to make a difference right where we are. So is it our school? Is it our workplace? Is it our neighborhood? Is it with our police force? Where are we where we might try together to come up with a way that we might alleviate some of these concerns? And then begin again, we, we learn, we did it, we did this much, it worked, this part needed to be changed, we start again. So having that mindful ability to kind of begin again with some graciousness and some, um, you know, ability to, to let go when the time is right and to, you know, see that, you know, it's time to learn and try something new. All of that is embedded in the way we might bring mindfulness to bear uh, to, to construct what I call color insight. Rhonda McGee is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco. She's also trained in sociology and mindfulness-based stress reduction. Her book is The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. You're listening to Get Connected on 106.7 Light FM. I'm Nina Del Rio. One of the foundations of color insight, your practice, is patience. Yeah. How is patience key to dealing with these experiences? And I, I often marvel at the patience people have in, in dealing with clear bias and racism. Um, how is patience or where does patience come in versus say status quo? Mm. Right, I mean, cause again, folks sometimes hear patience yeah, as, a, as a kind of way of pacifying and mm -hmm. you know, accommodating, right? Yeah. What it is. Well, again, I think for me, it's really just, there's a part of me that's very that sees uh, a kind of pragmatism to um, mindfulness practice, engaged mindfulness practice, the application of these practices for our work in the world. In other words, it's a very kind of invitation to like just seeing the truth about what's going on. <laughs> and when we stop and look, we can see, for example, We've had hundreds of years of training around race and racism, and it's not just an intellectual training. It's in our bodies. It's in our response reactivities. It's in our threat sensors. Um, and this is not something we're going to change overnight. This is just a truth. We might want, I, as much as anybody, would like racism and sexism and everything else, rape culture. There's a lot of things I'd like to just wave a wand and make go away overnight. But I'm also a realist. And I can see, I know in my own experience, how hard it can be for me to disrupt some habits and patterns that I have. You know, all of us, right, sometimes struggle to actually replace even habits that we know are not good for us. So it's from that place of understanding that change takes time and is not easy for human beings, even when you want to change. Bringing that humility right to bear. And then I think of, you know, People like one of my mentors in this work, John Paul Lederach, who is like an international peacemaker, actually, literally, he went, was a person who would be flown to all of these conflict sites, Rwanda and Bosnia and other places. And now he's had, you know, time, he's in retirement, he's sort of teaching others who do peacemaking work, what, what he learned. And one of the things he learned, he's learned and shares is, you know, actually doing peace that's sustainable takes time. There's no way around it, really. We, we can be tempted by a kind of a, a sort of a facile reach for what feels good. Like, and it's, it also can feel very powerful to say, we've, we've, you know, we've canceled, we've shut this down, we're not doing this anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look historically, often what that sets up is a kind of a revenge dynamic. It, it, it might not be, it might be in some instances, but it also might not be 
the best path to a sustainable approach to transformation. And so, um, you know, this, this book and my work is about opening the aperture on the different ways that we might explore change work and seeing that there might still be a place for compassion, for patience, for doing this part of the work and, and doing only as much as we really are ready to do and recognizing human beings are limited in their ability to do all kinds of things that in, in rapid, you know, in rapid pace, but we can do what we can do and we can keep at it. And it's that I'm, I, am I, and the question is, are we willing, not as somebody else willing to stay in it forever, but am I willing to kind of be that person who can stay in these difficult conversations and in this work, not just for this season or this, you know, quarter or whatever it is, but really for the rest of my life. That's what this work I think calls us to do. And my book is, is meant to help support that kind of orientation. We're going to do our part of it and try to change as much as we can, pause when we need to, pass the baton when it comes time, but, but stay in this work sustainably for the rest of our lives. And that's, that's where the patients come from. And, and it's sort of understanding your own identity. So yes. this came up in the book, I found this really interesting. And, and so many of us have mixed backgrounds and you talk about working with students who have mixed backgrounds and you get asked all questions all the time. Where are you from? Where's your family from? Mm -hmm. As if they're trying to figure out where to put us. Yes. Even though we may not even have an answer for ourselves. Sometimes it's this, sometimes it's this. Where does identity come from? Mm. Right. So, you know, all our cultures form us around notions of identity, really. And of course, in the United States, you know, and everywhere, I think, but certainly we are present aware of how it's notions of identity, social, notions of social identity or identity in the social realm, you might say. These things change, right? But that doesn't mean they just constantly, you know, have no relationship to the past. And in the United States, we built a society uh, that was really founded on race, you know, and what I mean by that, of course, is, you know, if you look at the very first, as one example, you can look at the constitution, language in the constitution, it doesn't mention race, but it explicitly you know, has provisions that apply to subjugated people, Native American people treated and taxed in a certain way mentioned in the constitution. Um, people who were enslaved, uh, compromises in the constitution that everyone knew to apply to those people, the importation and migration clauses, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but more than that, the very first immigration and naturalization law uh, that came down in 1790, right? Three years after the ratification of the constitution, bear with me being a law professor with some history. But the very first immigration and naturalization law conditioned being a, a naturalized citizen in the US on being white. You couldn't become a naturalized citizen unless you were white. And that kind of racial litmus test remained a feature of immigration law up through the 1960s in very explicit ways. And even today, the, the kind of ramifications of it are still in our discourse around immigration and our law and policy around who we value as an immigrant to this country and who we don't. So um, I'm saying all that to say identity is shaped in culture. It's shaped by law, policy, social norms. 
And so we have been taught to think of ourselves in terms of race in this country. And if we're not sure what race a person is, we're taught to kind of find a way to put them in a box. <laughs> and if we're of mixed race, as by the way, many of us are, but still the norms around us will counsel us. Well, you might be mixed, but you look white, or you might be mixed, but you look black. This sort of ocular test, I know it when I see it. And literally, ocular test is a phrase, a fancy phrase that the, the courts have used in these cases to determine whether somebody was white enough to become a citizen. Well, we'll look at them and see. I mean, it's kind of crass, but that's what um, those, that's a little bit of how we do, if you will, race as a social construction in our culture. And so um, where it comes from, again, it has ties to how we've done it in the past, but we kind of do it in the, even today. Like we're all invited to see ourselves through the lens of race, to find a way to define ourselves in terms of race because somebody's gonna ask us. And then to ally and you know, organize our lives and our you know, political and social and other ways of relating around this. And so all of that is sort of where it comes from today. And so Color Insight is about being present to the changes around race, but also our um, ability to disrupt some of what's going on or to engage more from a place of power around these terms so that we're not just borrowing the language and the practices of the past or of our community, but we're saying, hold on, I understand that race is relevant and I understand the different ways that my own embodiment impacts me and others, how other people treat me based on what I look like. And I can talk to you about that, but I also wanna put some daylight here that we're all much more than we're being reduced to with these labels. They really don't capture fully who we are. Those of us who supposedly have the same race have so much in common and different, we're, we're as diverse as anybody else. <laughs> and so opening up the aperture is part of what this work is about so that we can all experience more freedom around these, these terms that can be so binding. Rhonda McGee's book is The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so very much, Nina. I really appreciate this time. This has been Get Connected with Nina Del Rio on 106.7 Light FM. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. If you missed any part of our show or want to share it, visit our website for downloads and podcasts at 1067lightfm.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.